Old Testament passages, he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, and he goes ahead and quotes two Old Testament prophecies. Interestingly, the first one is not from Isaiah, it's from Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you're in the Gospel of Matthew at the very beginning and you turn to your left a little bit, you'll run right into Malachi. And then in verse 3 here, Mark records a verse from Isaiah. Isaiah, let me just give you a little bit of the background of some of these prophecies. In the book of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last kind of culmination of so many things that have happened in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's a collection of writings written by the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and it was for them, and it was for them to know their God. God had been revealing Himself to the Old Testament nation of Israel so that they would know Him, and that Israel was going to be set apart to be a light to the nations. Now, part of the way God revealed Himself to these people was to give them prophets, Prophets would come, prophets would preach. Sometimes their message was that of salvation. Sometimes it was that of judgment. Sometimes it was that of repentance or reform. Uh, the prophets would come and they would preach on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. And those prophets were written down in much of the Old Testament as a recording of the Old Testament prophets and what they said to the nation of Israel. Now, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, we get some of the hints that the prophecies might be ceasing soon. This is happening in Zechariah. There's descriptions of people are not supposed to be prophesying anymore. But there's also another thread that there's this, this, this statement that if you're not careful, you might just skip right over it, that there's going to be a big messenger who comes, a, a mighty one who comes before the ultimate coming of the Messiah. There, there's a hint in Malachi. It's chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. This is exactly what Mark is quoting as he wants to start off this book. Remember, he wants us to know Jesus Christ. Mark wants us to understand who he is. And so he's going to go right off the bat and say, he's not someone who just happened to appear on the scene. Everybody liked him. They threw a parade. Yay, we all love Jesus. No, this was rooted in ancient times, an Old Testament past. And he quotes from Malachi. And he says, look, even in Malachi, this ancient book written 400 years before Jesus even came, it spoke of this, behold, my messenger, I will send a messenger before your face. Who will, what's that word? Prepare the way. He'll prepare your way. This one is going to come. He's going to prepare the way for someone else. In the context of Malachi, it is very clear God is speaking and He's talking about His own coming into the world. And before He comes into the world, He's going to send someone who is going to be a messenger who will prepare the way for the coming of God. And then, by way of Malachi, he quotes Isaiah, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, there's that word again, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths 
straight. Here's what you can imagine. If you want to understand what, what's happening here, you can imagine there's a road. It's a little bit windy. Some boulders have fallen onto it. They're in the way. Branches from trees are making it hard to travel on. Maybe there's potholes. And then a king says, I'm coming and I'm using that road. What do people got to do? Well, this is not a road fit for a king. We got to figure out a way to fix this. So they start filling the potholes and they remove the boulders and they remove the branches and they make it a way so that this king can come and it's all fixed up so that people will see this is the true king. Well, this is what Mark starts with. He starts by quoting, God is coming into the world. It has been predicted in the Old Testament, but before he would come, he promised there would be another who would come. This one would be a messenger. His whole purpose would be to prepare the people to meet their God, to make paths straight, to clear the road, you could say, so that he who comes would be received with the right welcome. This is a prophecy. Jesus is prophesied, but also, right here, so is a prophet who would point to Jesus. You could say it is the messenger, lowercase m, who is going to point to the messenger of God, the uppercase m, the Messiah. He's going to be like a voice crying in the wilderness. His whole ministry is going to be pointing people to Christ. His whole life will be plowing the way, preparing the way. The people at this time were kind of eager for something like this. Uh, some have said there was kind of a messianic fever. Yeah, there, was, there, uh, there were ideas in the air. You know how that, wor- that phrase, there's an idea in the air. Well, in these days, there were people wondering, it's been so long since we've heard from a true prophet. It's been such a long time since we've heard new revelation from God. When is this Messiah coming? And many of the Jews would have believed that the prophets talked about one coming. They would have believed that there was coming a kingdom that would be established that would set up the reign of the Messiah. Some of them were waiting. Some were wondering, when's it going to happen? Mark begins by writing, it's happening. And as it, before it happens, there's going to be one who prepares the way. There's going to be one who prepares people to meet the God who made them. The Creator God is going to enter the world. The Creator of all things is going to become a part of His own creation. He's going to take it upon Himself to enter in. What is the ministry of John? Get prepared. Get ready. He's coming. All of His life, prepare to meet God. What an amazing ministry, right? I mean, there's one thing that we got to ask ourselves. It is actually, I think, something that people ask themselves uh, more often, maybe in their minds, than they ever ever verbalize. Uh, I want to ask you, are you prepared to meet God? We we all know that the Bible is very clear that God made us. We, We understand that the Bible teaches that we are accountable to Him. We, and we know the Bible is very clear about after death there comes judgment. We know that there will be a day that we ourselves stand before the one who made us. We believe these things as Christians. And even people who maybe have been on the fringe of Christianity and they're not so sure, they have this deep sense of understanding that they're going to be accountable for the life they lived. 
what would it be like to have a ministry that's wholly geared around helping people become prepared to meet God? I mean, how do you prepare for that? I mean, this is not something you'd look in the mirror and, and put on a little more makeup to get prepared for. You don't write down a few more questions to ask when you're about to meet your maker. And yet God has given us his word right here that's saying, this is what John came to do. He came to prepare people to meet God. And and friends, I just want to notice something here. Uh, This is really the job of Christians as well. I mean, we all, in one sense, look at John the Baptist's ministry and we go, John was here to help people understand who the Messiah was. That's why he was there doing what he did and how he did it. And are we, as a church, much different from that? There are unique differences between John and us. That must be stated. That is for sure. And yet, we, as representatives of God, as the church, we as ambassadors for Christ, we feel a deep sense of need, of responsibility, that we need to help people know that there's there's a God who made them. And that they're going to encounter that God someday. They're going to meet their maker, and we want to make sure that they're prepared to meet God. In Pilgrim's Progress, the, the, the famous allegory, there's a character named Greatheart. My favorite, one of my favorite character, characters in all of literature. He represents a pastor. In his whole life, he goes uh, bringing families and bringing little ones. He helps them get the, to the celestial city. He leads them to the river where they have to cross over and go into the city. His whole life is that of helping people get home to heaven. I think if we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, we look at that and we go, I want to be like that too. I want to help people get home. I want to prepare people to meet their God. And so what I want to do is I want to look at John the Baptist's ministry. I mean, John was the ultimate preparer. John was the ultimate one that was sent to prepare a people for the incoming of the Messiah. His whole ministry was about that. That's what he was set apart to do. In fact, there's evidence in the other uh, Gospels that he knew about this from a very young age. He understood his role. He was very clear on what his responsibility was, even from a very young age, to herald the coming of the Messiah. I want to ask this question. What did he do? How did he prepare people to meet God? What were the things that drove him? What was his ministry like? And I want to draw some principles out that will show us a little bit of what John was driven by, but also uh, apply directly to our very own lives as we seek to be faithful Christians who want to help others be prepared for meeting their Messiah. Let's first look at this, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming, note that, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Proclaiming. John appeared, proclaiming. Not a lot about his backstory, not a lot about the angels that heralded his birth, not much about how he got his name. Those are all included in the other Gospels. But we do know that he came and he appeared. Mark just gives it a very little detail. He appeared. And what did he appear doing? It says he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming. The same word is often translated, he was preaching. He was a preaching 
the gospel. He was preaching kind of a proto-gospel. Something before Christ had come, finished His work with His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection. He's preaching about the coming of the Messiah. God had sent Him and appointed Him to preach. Look at verse 7. And He preached, saying, After Me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Here's a first principle about how people must be prepared to meet their God. Here it is. People must hear about Christ. If people will be prepared to meet their God, they must hear about the Savior that God has sent into the world. The Messiah that God has given to the world. He preached He came preaching. In fact, if you even look at the Old Testament passages that are quoted here, behold, I send my messenger. This is going to be a man who has a message. He has a burden to say something. He's going to prepare the way for God, not by being a healer, not by being a guru, not by being an activist. He's going to come with a message. Verse 3, going back, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. He is going to be someone who could be described as a voice. He could be described as one crying out, shouting out, declaring the coming of the Savior. This is a mighty preacher. I want you to notice verse 5. It's saying all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and they're being baptized by him in the river Jordan. They're confessing their sins. This is hyperbole. Obviously, not every last person in Jerusalem is out in the wilderness. But I want you to notice how powerful is the preaching of John. How powerful is the preaching of John? People are coming from all over to hear this man. Now, now you might say, A person's a powerful preacher if they can fill up their church. Or you might say, well, uh, they're even more powerful if they can go out into the open air and they can preach to the streets and and see people even want to come and hear the message. And he draws crowds. This is what George Whitfield used to do. Open air preaching in the fields and the highways and byways and he would draw crowds of thousands. But look where John's preaching from. You see that? Where is he? He's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness and he's preaching. And it says in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all, the, all Jerusalem, this is Jerusalem, a major city, they're all leaving the city and they're going to the wilderness to hear him preach and respond to his message. This is a mighty preacher. This is a preacher that has been set apart by God for the express purpose of preparing for the Messiah. Now, there's a little piece of odd information. It's kind of funny. We, we, we don't get his lineage. We don't get his background. You don't get his pedigree. But we do get his clothing. And we do get his diet. Look at verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I think there's actually more to this than just simply Mark's interested in fashion. In fact, uh, this little description is probably part of the reason the masses are coming out to meet him. You say, why is that? Zechariah 13, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, I'll just simply note uh, the, the prophecy. It's the prophecy against false prophets. 
And they're describing how false prophets will no longer be able to prophesy. And in verse 4, describing the false prophet, he says this, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. You say, well, why would someone want to put on a hairy cloak at all? Well, apparently, if you wanted to be looked at as a prophet, you would put on a hairy cloak. The same thing that John is described have been wearing. Camel's hair, a coarse, thick hair woven together, uh, making this big, heavy garment that you would enable you to handle uh, cold winters. A leather belt to strap it all in and keep it together. This was apparently, according to Zechariah, if you wanted to be a false prophet, you would dress like one, you'd put on a hairy cloak. This is confirmed in 2 Kings 1.8. You could jot this in the margin of your Bible if you want to help you remember why Mark even includes this. But Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet, one of the most important prophets in the Old Testament, is described like this in 2 Kings 1.8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Is that not identical to John the Baptist's clothing? In other words, when John appeared on the scene, he was not only preaching a message that sounded prophetic, he looked the part. He looked like a prophet. He was wearing the clothing of a prophet. He was wearing exactly what people would have considered to be prophet's clothing, tracing all the way back to a prophet that most Jews would have known intimately, the prophet Elijah. He was a prophet. You say, how were people so impressed by him? They heard his message. They saw what he was looking like. They heard his powerful, mighty preaching. And they said, God is speaking again. Revelation. God is giving us truth. He is revealing himself. The prophets are coming back. And Mark wants to go on and say, this is the prophet to give an announcement of the coming Messiah. This is the one who's the messenger that prepares the way. I remember hearing a story of an old Bible professor who would love to stump his students. And he would stump him like this. He would say, who's the most important prophet in the Old Testament? And all the students would have their answers. It's, it's Isaiah. It's Jeremiah. No, 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 not him. It's, it's Elijah. No, not, not him. Moses? Uh, no, not him. And they'd start pulling out these names that you never heard of just to try to figure out who's the most important prophet of the Old Testament. And then, sure enough, the professor would disappoint everyone and he'd say, nope, it's none of those. It's John the Baptist. And all the students would go, but he's in the New Testament. And the, prophet, or the professor would go, yes, he is in the New Testament pages, but this is an Old Covenant prophet. This is an Old Covenant prophet. This is pre-death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is pre-ascension of Christ. This is pre-church of Christ. This is an Old Testament prophet. Though he appears on the pages of the New Testament, he falls right in line with the prophets of old, preaching a message just like they would have preached, wearing the same kind of stuff they would have preached. And this gives an account for how powerful he was. The Jews knew. The Jews knew. The Israelites in Jerusalem, they would have known, this is it. And Mark confirms it. He's the one preparing the way for the Messiah. God is coming. And they would have been thrilled to think a kingdom he's going to set up. The kingdom is near. The one who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to set up a kingdom. They would have been thrilled. He was, John, that is, an amazing and powerful and mighty preacher. What did he preach about? What did he preach about? 
We already read it. Look at verse 7. He preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that this is a Christ-saturated message, isn't it? I mean, he's got to prepare people to meet God, and so he's got to prepare people for Christ, and so he's got to preach Christ. He prepares the way for the Messiah by preaching about the Messiah. He prepares people to meet God incarnate coming to earth by preaching about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I want to note three kinds of things he preached about Jesus. First, he preached about Jesus' might. After me comes one who's mightier than I. I mean, these people would have been impressed by John. They would have been thrilled by John. They were gathering and clamoring all around. They were traveling miles to come hear John. There are preachers throughout history who have gathered crowds, but I don't think there's anyone like John. I don't know if there's anyone throughout history who has preached like John. We call Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers. I don't know if he would hold a candle against John, John the Baptist, sent from God for the express purpose of preaching Christ. People were flooding to him. They were coming all over. They wanted to be near. He was mighty. He's actually even recorded in secular history. He was written down. He had such a notable life and ministry that people who would not even receive his message noticed him and recognized him and even had good things to say about him. But you know what John's message was? It wasn't about his might. They all would have been looking at his might his preaching, and his powerful voice. But John's message is, no, it's not about me. Every preacher, myself included, needs to take this to heart. Preaching is never about the preacher. It is always and ever about Christ. He's the one who's coming. He's the mighty one. It's not me. He's mighty in truth. He's mighty in love. He's mighty in power. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to forgive. He's mighty to redeem. He's mighty to heal. He's mighty to fix. He's the one who's coming. He is the one who will make all things new. He is the one who we've all been longing for and waiting for. It is Him. He is mighty. But he also talked about Jesus' majesty. The strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He was humble before the Messiah. I don't even deserve to be his slave. Friends, we will really only ever attain to the humility that we need to live by in each day if we have a high view of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you recognized the majesty of Jesus Christ? And then your utter unworthiness to even know Him. I mean, He is so high and so glorious, so lofty, so mighty, so powerful. As we read in Colossians, He is the Creator. He made all things for His own glory. All rule, all dominion, all things visible and invisible, all things exist for the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ all humanity is accountable to Him. All the angels should worship Him. Every knee shall bow before Him. He is majestic. Do we see the majesty of Christ? That was part of John's ministry. 
Now, it's fascinating that even in, in Hebrew culture, first century culture, uh, uh, Jews had, they would have slaves. And these slaves were part of the household. They were treated kind of like servants. But even in their culture, to tie an, or untie someone's shoes was something that a slave was not obligated to do. Because even a slave would say, I'm a, I'm, we're above that. They can, they can undo their own shoes. They can undo their own sandals. The, 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 the slaves would do a host of other things, but they wouldn't have to. They weren't under any obligation um, to uh, tie or untie the sandals of their masters. John appears, and he's going, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest task for this person who's coming. I'm not even worthy to be his slave or under, I, I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. I'm not worthy to serve him in any way. Have we ever gotten to the mindset where we feel that we are worthy? Oh, it is a subtle temptation. And it's present in every one of our hearts that we will begin to think that the Lord saved us because we are worthy or that the Lord is using us because we are worthy. The the Lord is doing good things in my life because I'm worthy. And we can look at other people and even begin to think, well, the reason why things are happening in their life is because they're not worthy and I am worthy. And John corrects us here in light of the majesty of Christ. He says, I'm not worthy. And this ought to be the refrain of all true Christians. We're not worthy. We're not worthy at all. We're not worthy to worship Him. We're certainly not worthy to be His equal. But we're not even worthy to be His slaves. The only reason we have a relationship with Him is not because we're worthy. It's because He is worthy, and in his mighty love invites us to have a relationship with him. John preached his might, John preached his majesty, and John preached his ministry. It was all about Christ, and here he describes what his ministry is going to be. Now certainly, John preached more than this little two-sentence saying. He says, he's he's mightier than I, I'm not worthy to untie sandals. Verse 8 I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's describing the ministry of the coming Messiah, and He does so by comparing it with His own ministry. What was John doing? John was, is called the Baptist, not because he really liked potlucks. Uh, if he was invited to one and he brought his locusts and honey, I don't think he would ever be invited back. He's called the Baptist because this was a fundamental mark of his ministry. It was something that was being done that had not really ever been done before. In the Old Testament, we have things that are ritual washings for cleansing. Um, in, the day that Mark, or in the day that John was around, there was something they called proselyte baptism. If you were a, a pagan and you weren't in the nation of Israel, if you weren't Jewish and you wanted to worship the God of Israel, they had proselyte baptism. You could undergo baptism and become part of the people of God. But John is preaching to those people who thought they were already the people of God. They were, they were the Jewish nation. These are people coming from Judea and Jerusalem. And he's telling them about the, the, the need that they have to repent. 
They need to repent. And then he's symbolizing their repentance in water baptism. He's actually bringing them to the river. He's dunking them in the water. And he's baptizing them. But, but, but here we get what he's, he's preaching. As he's baptizing, we get what he's preaching. He says, I'm doing this water baptism. I'm doing something that is external. I'm doing something, it's a dunk in the water. I'm doing something that is, is really not going to change anything on the inside of you. I'm doing something that's purely symbolic. I'm doing something that represents cleansing, but doesn't accomplish cleansing. I'm doing something that represents repentance, but doesn't accomplish repentance. And he says something, however, what I'm doing, this baptism in the water, the one who's coming, he's going to baptize you, immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is going to bring about not external cleansing, but internal cleansing. This is going to cleanse the soul. This is going to not represent new life. This is going to bring new life. This is going to bring faith. This is going to bring repentance. The coming of the Holy Spirit is going to change people from the inside out. It was a promise that Jesus would send His Holy Spirit to do the work that no human could ever do. This is fulfilled at Pentecost and the Spirit comes down and fills every believer and it becomes an integral part of the new covenant that those in Christ receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for anyone in the new covenant by faith in Christ, attached to Christ by faith, for them to ever lose the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that the Spirit will come in, dwell with them forever. He will bring new spiritual life. He will cleanse the soul. He will grant faith. He will convict of sin. And over time, He will transform His people into the likeness of Jesus Christ. John's saying, I can't change your inside. I can only point to something that will change you on the inside. I can't make you a new person. I can only point to the person who can make you a new person. I can symbolically point you in baptism to your greatest external need, but there is one coming who can meet your internal need, your deepest need. He could transform you. That's the ministry of John. He's coming with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will change your life. Some of us perhaps have been trying to do the Christian life by just modifying behavior, trying a little harder, adding a, more, adding a little more ritual and discipline to your life. And John is saying that none of those things can change you. It is the Holy Spirit. He must come. And he's announcing that the one who's coming, the Messiah who's coming, is going to grant the Holy Spirit to give you power on the inside to change, to repent, to grow. Let's summarize it. John came because if people want to be prepared to meet their God, they need to hear about Christ. They must hear about Christ. There is no other way for people to be saved except that they hear about Christ. There is no other way that people can be transformed from the inside out except by meeting the person of Christ. There are no other options. There's no other hope. 
And yet this is revealed to us in his word. Why? Because God wants people to know. And we have been given the word so that God can have his word proclaimed. Uh, listen, church fads come and go. And if, if we're trying to build our church on innovations and clever marketing strategies, we're trying to build the church in a clever way, listen, we will never see true revival. We will never see life, real, vibrant, born of the Spirit, life among us if we try to build on things that just simply can't bring life. And so it has always been, from ancient times up till today, the need for the church to preach Christ. People must hear about Christ. I've heard it said that there may have been a time that it was the age of the ear. In the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked with God. And then there may have been a time in the life of Christ when people saw Him and they could touch Him. And they could, their own eyes, behold Him. But friends, we now live in the age of the ear where Christ is known through His Word. And the hearing of His Word is the way that people come to know salvation. From John the Baptist up to the Apostles through the early church fathers, and you can look through church history, and you would find faithful preachers of Christ. John Chrysostom, Ambrose, moving forward, Martin Luther, George Whitfield, to Charles Spurgeon, to Lloyd-Jones, to many others who are alive today, and they're preaching Christ. They're preaching the gospel. They're saying that He is mighty, and He is majestic, and He's the only one with a ministry that can actually change your life and change your eternal destiny. And we're going to stand in the long line of preachers and do our best to say, it's all about Christ. It's all about Him. And so our whole church is to be organized under this banner, Christ, for Him and for His glory. Unless you think that it's only the guy behind the pulpit that's responsible to help people meet their God by preaching. Just remember Romans 10.14. How are they to hear? How are they to hear? I mean, you go walk down the streets, you go to the grocery store, and you just see scores and scores of people. How are they going to hear? That's what Paul's asking. How are people going to hear? How are people going to hear among the nations? There are people who've never heard the name of Christ. How are they going to repent? How are they going to trust Him? How are they going to have their eternal souls saved and cleansed? How is it going to happen? How are they going to hear? Paul says, how are they going to hear without someone preaching? Someone's got to stand there on the behalf of God and speak His truth. They've got to be ambassadors for Him. They've got to relay the message from heaven about Jesus and what He has done. And I pray, and one of the things we've been praying this year, I know many of you have been praying this year, is that this year would be a year where we see many people coming to Christ in salvation. Let's keep praying for that. And not only praying that they would come to Christ, but would you pray that you would be used to be the one who announces to them the good news? That you would have the joy and privilege of leading one of your friends or family members or neighbors to Christ? Somebody needs to hear the gospel. Somebody needs to tell them. Faith, Romans 10, 17, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Live a good life. 
set a good example. But listen, your good life and your good example won't save anyone. They need to hear it. They need to hear the gospel. God knew this, which is why he sent a preacher, which is why John came proclaiming, which is why John came preaching. He had a Christ-centered message, and we as a church exist to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. May we do so not only from the pulpit, but in our singing, in our conversation, and as we scatter throughout the week, we live to uphold the name of Christ, to declare that He is mighty and majestic, and to declare that He is the one alone who can save sinners. Secondly, secondly, how do we prepare people to meet God? People must, here's our second point, people must repent of their sin. Not only must they hear about Christ, that, that's, that's where it begins, but that's not the end. People must repent. John's whole ministry is preparing people for the coming king. His whole ministry is preparing to meet God. And I want you to notice something. Look at, look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of what? Sins. Verse 5, they're going out, people are getting baptized. What are they doing as they're being baptized? The very end of verse 5, confessing their what? Sins. Sins. He's calling people to be baptized as a symbol of their repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. This word is repeated because this is the big problem that people face. Sin is the issue, right? Our sins have separated us from God, the Bible's clear about. The wages of sin is death, the Bible's clear about. The penalty for sin is death. Yes, physical death, we will all die. But yes, spiritual death, that talks about, that means eternal separation from God in hell. There is a penalty for sin. We, we say this soberly. But we say it because we love people and we want them to know that this is the issue. This is the problem. We are sinners. We've cut ourselves off from God because of our sin. And in fact, the Bible's very clear. If we stay committed to our sins, we declare God to be our enemy. The Bible's clear that we're called enemies of God if we want to stay with our sins. John's preaching. He's got a message. God's coming into the world. Things got to change. Things can't remain the same. You got a problem. It's called sin. You've sinned against a holy God. He's, he's coming. You got, you, you got an enemy if you don't repent. You got to respond to this reality. Repentance. People must hear Christ, but they must repent. It is one of the unfortunate realities of our church these days is that often repentance is ignored. It's not put as part of the call to respond to the gospel. So often it's just a message about the love of God and the message just goes out and a lot of people go, oh, cool, God loves me. And no call to repent. And yet right at the heart of John's message is repentance. And we're going to see this is right at the heart of Jesus' message as well. Repent. It's as if John has come, he grabs a stick and he gets a, line in the sand. He just draws that big line. 
It says, choose Christ, the one who's coming, or choose your sin. But don't straddle the line. Repentance does not mean that you're, you're going to become perfect. It does not mean that you forsake your sin to the degree that you never struggle with sin again. But it is a matter of where your allegiance is. And sadly, there are a lot of people who love their sin, and they're still calling themselves Christians. They love their sin. They don't want to give it up. They want to live in their sin. They want to wallow in their sin. And the line has been drawn, but they're more committed to their sin. And yet they like the idea of security, and so they're also calling Christ their Savior. John doesn't leave that option. He calls people to repent. In repentance, what what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? I'm going to show you a few things from what John was saying. What is involved in true repentance? First of all, notice these people were confessing their sins. Repentance involves confessing your sins. This is what they were doing. John's message of repentance led to these people confessing. This isn't like some of uh, our, our ideas of confession where we have to get into a confessional, we have to say certain things, and, and if we do so, we'll be absolved. Uh, the word confession in the Greek is homo logeo. It means to say the same thing as one, to agree with one. To confess means this. It's not just, yes, yeah, sorry, God, made a mistake, let's move on. To confess your sin needs to, means to agree with God about it. It means to see sin as He sees your sin. It means you see your sin as offensive, as repulsive, as repugnant. It is something to be expelled from your life, to be dismissed or dismantled. It is something that you no longer want. You want it out. To confess it means to say to God, I agree with you. This sin is filthy. You're right, God. It is grievous. It is deep. It is damning. I need a Savior. That's confession. That's confession. Have you ever confessed your sin to God? Have you ever agreed with God about your sin? Seeing it for what it truly is. Secondly, these people had to embrace the Savior. I mean, this was the central message of, Christ, of John's, John's mission. He's, he's preaching Christ. So if you're going to repent and be baptized, you're also saying, I agree, this one coming is the one. I'm going to embrace him as the one. I'm going to embrace him as the king. John was preaching about a mighty one coming to submit to John's baptism meant to submit to the one that's coming after him. It was an embrace of Christ. Listen, to be saved, if you want to repent of your sin and be saved, it involves first confessing your sins, agreeing with God about what your sins are, and then fleeing from them to embrace the Mighty One, the Majestic One, the One who can change you, the One who can forgive you, the One who can cleanse you, the One who can transform you from the inside out. That, that's an embrace of Christ, recognizing that He's the One that has the Spirit that can change you. The other side of the coin is this third part of repentance Of course, it's the turning from your sin. You're turning to Christ and you're turning from sin. It's a wholehearted reorientation of your life. It's a mind change that runs so deep it's a heart change and it changes the actual habits of your life. Have you repented of your sin? Again, so many people will love to say that they love Jesus but they want to hang on to their sin 
They're not turning from it. But to repent is to declare moral bankruptcy. It's to declare that you don't have anything in and of yourselves to commend yourself to God. It's a forsaking of any self-reliance. It's an admission of guilt. It's a seeking of cleansing from a source outside of yourself. And you're turning from your sin and embracing Christ. Listen, guys. If you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, if you're even visiting and you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you've been in rooms like this where you've heard so many sermons uh, week in, week out, let me invite you to repent and experience the forgiveness of sins that is offered here. I mean, what would you do to have your sins forgiven? Because he's declaring here in verse 4, this is repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. I wonder if for some of you, your sins nag you. I wonder if for some of you, there's shame that haunts you. You live under a weight of sin. It's like a giant burden you carry around on your back. And maybe it's something that people all know about because your life seems to be a wreck. Or maybe it's something that you've hidden very well under the guise of religiosity and external performance, but on the inside, you are in abject turmoil. The nagging guilt, the dirty mind, the shameful past, the enslaving addiction, it's there in your heart and maybe few people know about it or no one at all. And I want to ask you, have you repented of your sin? Have you confessed that sin? Have you embraced the Savior? Have you turned from it? And let me guarantee as this passage and several others that those who do that experience forgiveness. Cleansed. Washed. Washed in the blood of Christ. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No longer trying to earn your way to heaven. All that God has for you, all His blessings for you, yours in Christ. Don't go insane because sin can drive you insane over guilt. Don't let it nag you forever. Don't let the shame be a shadow over your life that you can never outrun. It'll drive you nuts. But rather, the message is simple. Confess. Embrace Christ turn, receive the cleansing, receive the forgiveness, receive the healing. This is the power of the Holy Spirit and this is what Jesus has come to do. Come to Him. Come to Him. So John was preparing the way for the people. He first needed to preach Christ because people need to hear about Christ. But more than that, he needed to call them to repent. He needed to call them to decisively break from sin, to commit their allegiance to Jesus. But listen to the third thing he did. People must make it public. There's our third point. People had to make it public. They had, they had to declare their allegiance in a very public way and going down into the water and going down to the river and they had to declare their allegiance to God, declare their sinfulness and need of cleansing in their baptism. To be baptized was to admit, I'm spiritually dirty, I'm far from God, and I need to be cleansed. It was to do so publicly. 
Now, we are not doing John's baptism as a church, but Jesus, at the end of his life in Matthew 28, said to the last apostles as he ascended into heaven, he told them that they got to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In other words, the principle's the same. John's ministry was like this. God is coming into the world. You are all in sin and need to repent, but I want you to make that public by declaring your allegiance before men, and I want you to get in the water and be baptized. And friends, the same is true of Christ. It is that Christ has come into the world. He has lived the perfect life for sinners. He rose from the dead after being killed on a cross. Now he's alive. Before he ascended, he said, I want my people to make themselves known. I want my followers to stand up before others and declare their allegiance to Christ. And the mechanism for that is baptism. If you're not yet saved, yes, repent, confess, embrace Christ, forsake your sin. But one of the ways you express that newfound heart of obedience is to stand before the church and say, I'm no longer with the world, I'm with Christ. And I'm with the church. I'm with the people of God. That's what baptism is. If you've been a Christian for a number of years or even for a short period of time and you've never been baptized, I'm so thankful that you're here and you're listening to this message and I want to invite you to take the next step of obedience to Jesus, to be baptized and declare your allegiance to Him. This is an expression of faith. Baptism will not save you. It will not cleanse you. In fact, we can say like John, we baptize with water. We don't do anything internally. We can't change the heart. But the baptism that Jesus has given us is meant to express the internal reality that the Spirit brings. He changes us. He cleanses us. He makes us alive. And what do we do in baptism? We symbolize all those things by going into the water and being publicly identified with Christ. So that's the third way that John was preparing people to meet their God. Be baptized. And I want to invite all of you who have not yet been baptized to come talk to me or maybe some others around you about what that might mean for you to be baptized. Listen, let's end on this note. Go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. How do you prepare to meet God? The answer really is found in John's ministry. You come in contrition. You come with repentance. You come admitting the filth of your own sin. You come pleading for mercy. And you come seeking forgiveness. And when you do that, you know what happens is you get it. You get forgiveness. You get cleansed. You get internally healed. And then what do we do? Let's let Psalm 103 be the voice of those who are cleansed and forgiven. We say things like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that's within me. Everything in me. Let's bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you. I mean, it gets him better. You're in the pit. We're in in absolute abject misery and despair. And he redeems us out of the pit. And not only that, look at He crowns you with steadfast, that's never ending, that is always and forever love and mercy. 
He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Friends, we will all stand before God. John the Baptist prepared his generation to stand before God. And I hope you are prepared to stand before God. And if you have confessed your sin and you've turned from it, you've embraced the Savior, let me just invite you, like Psalm 103 says, to give your whole life to blessing His name, to declaring His benefits, to enjoying the relationship you now have, to letting your youth be renewed like an eagle's so you can serve Him with all your might. We will meet Him soon, church. We will meet Him soon. And so the life we now live, we live for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord John, such an example for us as he preached Christ. He showed us some of the things we need to know to be ready to meet our God, to meet you. Lord, I pray for those who are not prepared. Lord, if there are any in this room who are deceived, who think they're right with you, but have not, in fact, repented, I pray, Lord, that you would stir them up, that you'd make them uncomfortable until you draw them to yourself in true faith and true repentance, and they would experience the high joy of true relationship with you. And I pray for those of us who have been made ready to meet you through Christ, that we would live our lives blessing you, rejoicing in you, that we would shout your praises and that we would live as those who have been commissioned to help others meet you as well. Lord, we want to do this for your great name. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.